Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that our imaginations would be enlarged, that our minds would be strengthened, that we'd actually begin to see how great it is that we have been joined to the body of your Son. Amen. Justin joked before the service that finally we're getting to do a book study. If you're curious, you just heard the whole of the book of Philemon. If you were trying to read through the Bible, we just checked that one off your list for you in one fell swoop. That's it. I had an old Bible teacher who actually said of Philemon that it's Paul's postcard instead of a letter. I've actually been looking forward to this particular Sunday. You may at the end of this go, I was not looking forward to this Sunday. I was looking forward to this particular Sunday because I was actually excited to talk about Philemon with you. It's fascinating. It's this super personal postcard that Paul writes to his friend Philemon, and there's like zero theology explicitly stated in it. It's just a personal appeal to a friend. Paul's reaching out to a friend on behalf of this young man whose name is Onesimus. If we want to step back and sort of see and feel the situation, the year is somewhere between about 54 and 62 AD. We're not entirely certain exactly where it is or when it is. Paul's in prison at this moment. And the two places that people think are probably the most likely places is that he's either in prison in Ephesus, and if it's in Ephesus, it's like 54 AD, or he's in prison in Rome. And if he's in prison in Rome, we're talking 60, 61 AD, something like that. But Paul's in prison. And this young man shows up to where Paul is in prison. And this young man's from a town called Colossae. Now, if that's hard to remember, just think, it's the Colossians. He's one of the Colossians. And he shows up to Paul, and his name is Onesimus. It's the guy that Paul mentions in this letter. And Onesimus is actually a slave. He's a slave of a man named Philemon, the man that this letter is actually addressed to. Philemon was a wealthy businessman from Colossae. Colossae is a small city, a large town, about 100 miles from Ephesus. That's the big place. And so if you were to imagine this in the map of Virginia, pick some modest little town 100 miles away from Richmond. Philemon's a big deal in this small town, a wealthy businessman. But at one point when he's in Ephesus, in the big city, he's come to Richmond, and he's doing business there. And at that moment when he's in Ephesus, Philemon runs into Paul preaching. And Philemon actually becomes a Christian. He becomes a Christian and goes back to his hometown. When he gets there, he finds that there's other, this other guy named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras is an associate of Paul. And Courtney told me, y'all would never be able to place all these names together, so we're going to abbreviate them. We're going to call Epaphras Epa. That's easier to remember. But Epa is a friend of Paul's, and he's now in Colossae. So Philemon comes back home, and there's this guy in his town spreading the gospel. That same gospel I just heard from Paul in Ephesus. And the gospel takes root in Colossae like wildfire and spreads all over the city. And Philemon is all in on this. And so Philemon says, hey, this church can meet in my home. I've got lots of space. We can meet here. And so the church actually begins to meet in Philemon's house. We look at the names that Paul writes this letter to. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, 
and to Aphia, our sister. We don't know, but it's a good chance that's his wife's name. You get to get a sense of this family, and they've got this church meeting in their home. Well, at some point or another, Epa, remember Epaphras, he leaves Colossae, and he says, I'm going to go back and help Paul. I'm going to go work with Paul wherever Paul is. Let's say it's Ephesus. And at that moment is when the moment when Paul gets snagged and thrown into prison. Epaphras picked the exact wrong moment to go rejoin Paul in the mission because now he's stuck in prison with Paul for preaching the gospel. But about this time, the church in Colossae is also struggling with some theological questions. And so there's this weird confluence of events, and they say, our guy, Epa's in prison. Paul's in prison. We've got serious questions about what we believe going on. We need to hear from Paul. Well, they can't spring him from prison, so they send a man named Tychicus. We're going to call him Tick for short. They send Tychicus, Tick, to Ephesus to talk to Paul because they want to hear from him about what's going on. And Tick shows up, and he finds Epaphras in prison, and he finds Paul in prison, and he's got his list of problems and questions. But there's something else there. Onesimus is there. And you go, wait a minute. Who, Onesimus, who's it? Oh, yeah, he was Philemon's slave way back in Colossae. And you're going, how did he get here? It's clear that Onesimus has done something wrong. Paul's so tactful in this letter, he doesn't say what it is. I mean, our best guess is that he's actually stolen from his master and took off running. He didn't want to be a slave. His master had plenty of money, and he says, I'm getting out of town. We think he probably stole because Paul actually says in this letter, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. He probably lifted something on his way out of town. And Tychicus shows up in Ephesus. He's looking for Paul, and who does he find hiding in the city? Hey, it's Onesimus. What are you doing not at Colossae? And wait a minute, where'd you get those new shoes? Something's wrong here. So he collars them, and he takes them to Paul in prison. And we're reconstructing the story here. I mean, Onesimus may have gone of his own accord, but it seems like Tychicus grabs him, drags him before Paul, and says, look what I've caught. Philemon's slave who took something on his way out of town. But the most beautiful thing happens there. Because in that moment, Onesimus and Paul start talking. And before we know it, everything changes. Onesimus receives the Lord. He becomes a Christian. Everything changes. And so Paul sits down with the people who are with him, and they write three letters, one to a church in Laodicea. It's a little town near Colossae. That letter's been lost. He writes another letter with it to the church at Colossae, dealing with those theological problems that they had going on. And then he sends a personal letter to Philemon. And he looks at Onesimus, this man who's just become a Christian, and he looks at Tick, and he says, you too. I trust you too. Take these letters back to Colossae, Deliver the one to Laodicea to the church there and put this one in the hands of Philemon. And that's the letter that we have. The letter that Paul sent pleading on behalf of this particular young man who had stolen something, ran away, and then just through the grace of God became a Christian in Paul's presence in prison. Listen to the letter with that introduction. And I'm going to jump in at verse 8 where the appeal starts. 
Paul says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. It's simple. It's beautiful. It's full of grace. He says, I could tell you what to do. I've got that much authority. But I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to make an appeal. I'm going to make a request. And you go, what's his request? The request is simple. I'm sending this young man back to you. And I want you to receive him as if he were me. I want you to greet him not as your slave, but I want you to greet him as a brother in the Lord. We don't know Philemon's response. I think it's actually really safe to assume that he took this letter, that he was convicted, that he realized he had his own fault in the matter in the way that he had treated this young man, and that he transformed his whole perspective, and that he welcomed him with opening open arms. I think that's a safe assumption, because if he had rejected Paul's appeal, I don't think we would still have this letter. He would have read it, torn it up, I hope no one read that on the way. I'm not listening. The fact that the letter is preserved, I think, is a testimony to the fact that Philemon heard this appeal and looked at Onesimus with the love of Christ, freed this young man, and greeted him as his brother. The story doesn't actually end here, and this is where we step out of the scriptures into the realm of tradition, but it's tradition that's well-supported, and I'll explain. About 50 years later, the year is 110 A.D. There's a man named Ignatius, and Ignatius is the bishop of Antioch. Antioch is that city in Syria where Paul first ministered. Ignatius is a big deal. In fact, Ignatius may be the most important leader of the church worldwide at this moment. Ignatius sat at the feet of the apostle John. He was the last living link to the apostles. He was discipled by the apostle John himself. He's bishop of Antioch, and the Romans decide this man needs to be made an example of. And so they drag him out of Antioch and Syria, and they're marching him all the way to Rome to kill him. And as Antioch's 
going along the way, you can imagine the Roman soldiers treating him roughly around him. Antioch, I mean, as Ignatius is, Ignatius is a fairly old man at this point. As he goes through Turkey, on the way from Syria to Rome, in the town of Smyrna, this is about 50 miles north of Ephesus, the bishop of Ephesus shows up to greet him on the way. He knows the story. He knows who Ignatius is. And the bishop of Ephesus says, I'm not going to miss this chance. I'm going to be waiting when the soldiers pass through Smyrna. And I'm going to grab him and encourage him and pray for him on his way to martyrdom. You want to know who that bishop of Ephesus was 50 years later? Onesimus. This slave who became a Christian at the feet of Paul, who was set free by his master, And 50 years later, as a 70 or 75-year-old man, we don't know how old he was when he ran away, 15, 20, whatever. As a 70 or 75-year-old man, he's the bishop of Ephesus. The bishop that goes and encourages Ignatius on his way to martyrdom. And Ignatius is so overjoyed that he writes this letter back to the Ephesian church. And he effectively says, I've never met a bishop this good. This man showed me love. That's the full scope of this story. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a fascinating little letter. It's amazing to think that this particular little letter actually was something that God used to change the trajectory of this life. I mean, you think about this old Jewish Pharisee. This old Jewish Pharisee, Gentiles despised the Jews, turned apostle, but he's stuck in a jail. And you think of this young slave. He's got zero rights in the world, on the run, desperate. And he ends up in front of this old Jew who shows him compassion. And he becomes a Christian. And you think about this old Jewish Pharisee turned apostle in prison, writing to a wealthy Gentile saying, I could tell you what to do. That's how much authority I have in Christ. But I won't. I'm just going to appeal to you. And I'm going to ask you, greet this young man as your brother. Treat him like you would treat me. It's a beautiful story. There's so much grace and kindness in it. It's grace and kindness, honestly, that the world around them would never have understood. We know that, by the way. I don't say that sort of haphazardly. This wouldn't have made any sense in the world. And the reason why we know this is because we actually have other letters like this. We have other notices of, here's my escaped slave, return him to me. We know how these things were dealt with and talked about it. In the most amazing parallel, there's this man, and forgive me for the excessive number of stories, but there's this man named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger is wealthy and powerful. He's a Roman senator. Pliny the Younger was born right at the moment that Philemon was being written, right about 60 A.D., And years later, as an adult, so think 40 years after Philemon, Pliny the Younger encounters the exact same situation. One of his buddies, a guy named Sabianus, has a freedman run away from him. Now, freedman is a step above slave in the Roman economy, but a freedman is still not somebody with a great deal of rights. They have freedom. That's why they call him freedman, is they were a slave who'd been freed. But this man has run away from Sabianus, and he's actually gone to Pliny and said, I need your help to intercede with my master. He's a wretched master, and I can't work for him anymore. And so Pliny writes a letter back to Sabianus, just like Philemon, 
except for the fact that it's unlike it completely. Because in it, Pliny says, take him back. Take him back and show how magnanimous you are. Just punish him lightly. You don't need to go over the top. You don't want to have that kind of reputation. Besides, you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So just give him a little beating, but bring him back in and show yourself to be a merciful man. There is no sense in that letter of receive him like a brother. There's no sense in that letter of you two are both children of God. The, the, the point is, is even though the situation seems similar, everything is different in Philemon. Everything is different. This is your brother. Receive him the way you would receive me. Everything's different. At this point, if I were to say to you, well, what causes the difference? Why does Pliny not say receive him like your brother? And why does Paul say, receive him like your brother? What's the difference? And every Sunday school child would say, Jesus. You know the joke, right? The Sunday school teacher says, what's brown and furry and lives in a tree? And the child says, that sure sounds like a squirrel, but I know it's Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is the answer to everything, right? What's different is Jesus. But that's actually one of those answers that sometimes we give And it prevents us from stepping into deeper waters that would really encourage and transform our hearts. What is it about Jesus that makes this situation different? What is it? Paul doesn't spell it out. He doesn't actually make an argument. Think about the arguments he could have made. He could have said, you remember, Philemon, the very first time Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, He opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned to that passage that said, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Part and parcel with the ministry of Jesus is freedom from captivity. And if that's true spiritually, it should also be true physically. Therefore, Philemon, set your slave free and treat him as an equal in the Lord. We can imagine arguments that he might have made. But he actually doesn't make an explicit argument. He just assumes Philemon will understand. He hints at something, but he doesn't spell it out. And it's that thing that he hints at that I actually want to talk with y'all about for a few moments. Don't worry at this point. This isn't second sermons after the first stories. But there's something under the surface of Philemon, and this honestly was why when I saw this on the lectionary a few weeks ago, I was so excited for this Sunday. The thing that runs under the surface of Philemon that animates this difference, the thing that Paul assumes that Philemon is going to get without having to be explicit, that's the thing that I want to pull out into the surface. In fairness, this thing that's running under Philemon is actually something that runs under all of Paul's letters. If you were to say sort of like what's his most central theology you might come up with four or five things, and this is one of those things that's most important, that's running under surface of all of his letters, that every now and then springs up the way an underground river might have a little spring that comes up to the surface, that sometimes bursts forth in its entirety like the river swells up and fills a lake and sometimes seems to disappear again. But even when it's underground, it's always there. This thing is running under all of Paul's letters. He references it in passing over and over and over. And the reference in passing over and over and over is this little phrase, in Christ. Y'all have heard that phrase, right? 
It litters Paul's letters. In fact, it occurs five times in Philemon. Five times, he says, in Christ or in the Lord. Five times in 25 verses. Paul says this over and over and over. It's a little spring popping up, but it comes from a deep underground river. And it's that river that makes everything different. It's that river that Paul assumes Philemon will understand. So you say, so what's the river? What does in Christ refer to? Sort of in a very simple and short fashion, in Christ is Paul's tagline to refer to what we call the doctrine of incorporation. Now, don't get threatened by that terminology. I give it to you, but I'll back up from it and just explain it. The doctrine of incorporation is this basic claim that Paul makes over and over and over that everyone who follows Jesus becomes part of the Messiah. Let me stop there and say it again. Everyone who follows Jesus becomes part of the Messiah. At this point, you may go, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm a part of Jesus? This is what Paul's referencing every single time he says, in Christ, what he mentions in passing to Philemon with this phrase, that everyone who follows Christ has become part of the Messiah, that their lives are joined to his, fused into his, grafted into his, and that they are a part of him. If I were asked a show of hands, how many of y'all think that sounds strange? My guess is that the only people who didn't raise their hands are the ones who just missed everything that I just said. Like I said, this is something that feels foreign to us. But it's actually Paul's ordinary basic theology that's animating so much of what he says in other places. Evangelicals tend to think about Jesus living in them. By the way, this is proof that it's not too difficult to understand. Evangelicals tend to think of Jesus living in them, right? That's good in biblical. Galatians 4.19, Paul says that he earnestly desires that Christ be formed in them. That's good in biblical theology. But far more prevalent in Paul's writing and thinking is the idea that your life is in Christ, that you are embedded in him. Imagine a bucket cast into the ocean. And imagine the bucket saying, hey, look, the ocean's in me. And you would look at bucket and you would say, bucket, that is true. But it's far more significant that you are in ocean, right? You see the point? It's perfectly right and biblical to say Jesus in me. But it's far bigger and more expansive to say I in Christ. Both are biblical. I think of the prophet speaking beautifully of Jerusalem in a way that points forward to the church and to the believer. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and the glory within her midst. Both are true. But the one that Paul goes to over and over and over is that your life is incorporated into Christ's life. You are made a part of him. If this sounds totally strange, you're normal. But Paul offers a couple of analogies that help, and I promise that I'm going somewhere and won't take all day to get there. Paul offers a couple of analogies to help. In Romans 11, he offers the analogy of a tree. And he says that we have been grafted into the trunk 
Does this help you understand what it might mean that your life is grafted into Christ's? That the branch has been grafted into the trunk. He's speaking of an olive tree and the practices of gardening. But we can begin to see it. If that branch were not grafted into the trunk, it would wither and die. But grafted properly into the trunk, the sap of the trunk begins to flow through the branch and fill it with life. And it's a life that can't come from the branch itself. It's a life that's totally different and other and fills it something that the branch could never do for yourself. If you wonder where Paul got that analogy, think of Jesus at the Last Supper, John 15. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you remember. The point is, is that this analogy helps us see that our lives have been fused to his, grafted into his, that his life now flows through us because we've been joined inseparably to him. If you go, okay, that's a little bit helpful, but this thing is still too big for my mind to think that I've been made a part of the Messiah. Think of his other famous analogy. By the way, these are places where the underground river is bursting forth onto the surface and we see all of its glory. The other famous analogy is the one that he offers to the Corinthians, that you're the body of Christ. Take that seriously for just a moment, that you are fused to the head And because you are joined to him, there is life in you that would not otherwise exist if it were not for this point. It's hard to get our head around this, but it's one of those things that flows under the surface of all of Paul's letters. I have to actually stop myself at this point, unless y'all really do want to be here all day, from mentioning all of the places where this underground river bursts to the surface. This idea that you have been joined to Christ and therefore everything is new and it's not a metaphor, but your life is fused to him more deeply than a finger is to its hand and the hand to the arm and the arm to the shoulder that you more tightly bound up in him like a branch, the trunk slit open, pierced like the side of Christ, the branch inserted and sealed so that it's suddenly growing with life and fruit that this is your life in Christ. There's so many places where Paul brings this up and refers to it. Romans 6, and your baptism, you were buried into the death of Christ. You actually participated in his death because you were joined to him. This is the sort of thing that should make our head spin. It should make our head hurt. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says that in the Eucharist, we actually participate in his body and blood, that we are grafted together with him In some way, in Colossians 3, he says you have been raised up with him. That because you were joined to him, you are where he is. This is the theology that animates much of what he says in his letters. And it's what's below the surface in Philemon every single time he says in Christ. Paul's appeal to Philemon rests on Philemon understanding this. It's what Paul is reminding him each time he mentions it in passing. And we can begin to flesh this argument out. That if Philemon is grafted into Christ, and if Onesimus is grafted into Christ, if Philemon is a branch in the tree, and Onesimus is a branch in the tree, what right does one branch have to say to the other, I am above you? Neither has life in and of themselves. Both have life only through the trunk that provides them life. We can see how this very quickly leads to the fact that you have to receive him as a brother. 
Anything else is to deny that you have life because of Jesus Christ himself. You could take that and go, wait a minute. That theology then undergirds everything that we might say about how we treat each other. And you go, yeah, of course. Because if indeed we are both branches grafted into the same trunk, only alive because of the life of this trunk, what would it mean to treat somebody else as less than that? It would be to despise the very work that God has done in their life, to act as if Christ's life doesn't count for them. You see how this undergirds the ethics that he offers. To be honest, I wish that we had like three hours. Y'all are grateful that we don't. But this particular doctrine changes everything. Just in like passing in 30 seconds, think with me. If your life has been joined to Christ, not metaphorically, but actually grafted into his, when he ascends to heaven, where do you go? You go with him. Is that not beautiful that you can stand in the courts of heaven because you've been joined to Christ? Think about if a non-Christian enters our midst, if we have actually been grafted into Christ, if we've actually been made his real body, that person is actually encountering the living, walking, breathing presence of Christ in their midst. Not an example, but his very fingertips, his eyes, his ears, the body himself. Much of the ethical teaching of the New Testament assumes this doctrine and rests on this doctrine. Romans 6, if you've actually been fused to him, then in your baptism, you were there with him in his death. And if you were there with him in his death, then sin in your life has actually been defeated. And if sin in your life has actually been defeated, start acting like it. Much of Paul's teaching ethically assumes this sort of incorporation. Think about the fact that when we gather, if this is true, if this is true, when we gather, what is this gathering? Is the very presence of Jesus. And you go, but I don't feel that. And that's the point, is that it is the presence of Jesus in, even when we are too blind to feel it, that he is here in our midst. Think about the implications of this for loneliness. One of the most common and ordinary manifestations of modern man and woman, to be utterly alone even when surrounded by people we love and know. If you've actually been grafted into the life of Christ, fused to him, made a part of the Messiah, you are never actually alone. There is no such thing as a time when you are abandoned on your own, if this is true. Think about the implications for suffering. Paul mentions this one in Colossians 1.24, speaking to this very same church, referring to his own sufferings. And he calls his own sufferings a part of Messiah's sufferings. In other words, if you are fused to Christ, every bit of suffering you experience is no longer is now Christ's sufferings. Not because he says, I'll take that in some metaphorical sense, but because you're part of his life, and therefore every wound to you is a wound to him. The implications are manifold over and over and over. We need to close, but I just want to give you all one final thought. The final thought that I want to give you is this idea of security. 
We could go so many different places that Paul sort of fleshes this out. But I just want to land on this idea of security. We spend an awful lot of time working for our own security, worried about our own security, seeking something that will offer us security. But if your life is fused to Christ, if you've been grafted into him, those pursuits suddenly lose their meaning because Christ is secure. He doesn't lose those that he has joined to himself. He does not let branches accidentally fall off the tree. You are secure because your life is hidden in his. This is a place where we can say, Lord, thank you. Even when the world is shifting and changing and we don't feel that security, this is a place where we can say, yet look what I've been given. I've been given an anchor that carries me through the storm because I've been joined to the anchor himself. Amen.